This is Nate Imig, co-host of Be Seen, a six-part podcast focused on Wisconsin's LGBTQ history. Well, make that a seven-part podcast because we've got a bonus episode for you this week. It addresses a rumor we heard throughout our research, and it's a juicy one. Let's bring in co-host Michael Takash, curator of the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project. Well, Michael, this episode's all about the mafia and how it was connected allegedly to Milwaukee or how it wasn't connected to gay bars in Milwaukee. Uh, as we were doing our research, we had a lot of people speculate and bring up this kind of often repeated folklore, right, Michael, of uh, the mafia's role in these gay bars. So the prevailing folklore somehow <laughs> over all of these years, <laughs> despite all evidence to the contrary, is that the mafia started all of the gay bars in Milwaukee. And without the mafia, there wouldn't have been any gay bars in Milwaukee. Now, while that might have been true in other major cities in America, including New York City and Chicago, um, that doesn't appear to be true here, at least not from the evidence available to us. And we talked to a few different folks uh, to verify this information. In fact, Gavin Schmidt, who literally wrote the book about Milwaukee Mafia, we talked to him and uh, he had a pretty definitive answer on whether or not the mafia was involved. And um, the answer was mostly no, but there were some exceptions. So, yes, you're absolutely right. It does appear that the Balistrieri crime family did have some connections to nightlife throughout Milwaukee history, but not necessarily gay nightlife, except in two notable exceptions and a possible third. And we're going to explore those in this episode of the podcast. We're going to get into that. Of course, we talk with Gavin as well. Um, and we're going to answer this question. Was, was the mafia involved in Milwaukee's gay bars? So, naturally, our first call was to this expert. I'm Gavin Schmidt. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, including Milwaukee Mafia. Uh, I like to consider myself Wisconsin's criminal historian. We're interested in this story, of course, because there's a lot of folklore about how uh, the mafia might have been involved with certain bar operations in Milwaukee, certain gay bar operations. We've heard a lot of people say, just kind of off the cuff with this, like, kind of the assumption that everybody knows this. So, like, it's common knowledge. Of course the mafia was involved in Milwaukee's gay bars. And um, we're we're learning and we know that that's not quite as accurate as is often spouted. I know, you know, Chicago... Uh, had that going on. New York is famous for that. So, uh, yeah, there there is a connection in, in other cities, but I don't know that there's necessarily a strong overlap between the rise of the gay bar community and, and mafia bars. There were a lot of mafia bars, and there were a number of gay bars, and sometimes they overlapped, but not necessarily. I don't think there was really a, a definite link between the two. Just just because a couple happened to have that link, I don't think there was really a strong connection there. And you've spent years reading these FBI reports about Milwaukee nightlife. Are there any records that, I guess, have shown that the, the mafia was just straight not involved with this? Well, based on what I'm able to see in the FBI files, there's a very limited selection we know they had a connection to. The most famous of course, being the pink glove, which had a very, very short operating time. But um, of any of the other ones, the the ones uh, that are kind of famous today, the Mint Bar, for example, or now we've got uh, This Is It, which has this amazing history. I mean, there's not really any any connection to the mafia there, but 
definitely within the mafia files. These places are not even mentioned, um, or if they are, they're mentioned very much in passing. So uh, if there is a link there, I mean, it's hidden very well. So I I just don't think that there's any record out there that, that can support it. If I don't have an actual document, I don't want to claim something is true. Well, that's pretty definitive. Uh, we appreciate we appreciate that. I mean, um, having having spent the time and the effort of combing through these FBI reports, um, that's a pretty good source. I mean, you would think if there was this really well documented um, involvement, uh, these places would be named, and they would be, you know, these connections would be apparent. Right. Yeah. And and let me be very clear about that. When the FBI had an interest in somebody, they didn't let go. The the minimum period of time they opened a file on somebody was six months. In many cases, they followed guys around for years or even decades. So if they did something, it it was in the record. I mean, their phone records are pulled. So if if they're somehow connected to uh, the gay community and it didn't make it into the record, I don't know how that's possible. So (laughs) the FBI is very, very thorough when it wants to follow somebody. Why do you think the folklore persists that the mafia launched the gay bar tradition in Milwaukee? Like, why do you think that persists to this day to a third and even fourth generation of people that have lived after the mafia? I don't know why this story persists, that there's this strong mafia uh, gay bar community overlap. If I were to make a guess, it would be because the story of Stonewall is so large, so looming um, in the you know the common history. For people who aren't looking into the details, that's the name that people know. And and of course, there is some link there uh, in New York. So maybe people think that oh well, that's how it works there. That maybe it worked that way everywhere. But I don't know. I don't know why it persists and why people think it's in Milwaukee. And I I imagine if people were challenged on individual bars or individual names, uh, they would have a tough time coming up with something because there really isn't. It's just not there. And I know you and I have have talked about this, uh, you know, elsewhere in that it does it does kind of take away from to be perfectly frank the heroic story of the local bar owners who were facing you know crackdowns you know they didn't need somebody to come in and help them they took that on themselves and i think it really is a shame that for whatever reason this rumor persists when there's no evidence and you know i always have to be clear just because there's no evidence doesn't mean it's true but as a historian I need the evidence. If you don't show me the record, if you can't put something down on paper or show me a photograph, I can't tell you what happened. I'm not going to claim something that can't be backed up and the record's just not there. But is it an open and shut case? Not exactly. Coming up next, Michael tells us about those exceptions we mentioned, a small number of establishments that had clear connections to organized crime, including one that went down in a widely reported front page news scandal that shook Milwaukee. But who was involved in that scandal? Probably not the folks you're thinking of. 
We'll get to that story of the River Queen before the end of this episode, and we'll talk about two more known establishments that came up in our research, next on Be Seen. Do you want to know the secret behind the programming you love? It's all funded by the Honor System. As a public radio station, we're based on a very simple model. We try to do something meaningful, connecting with you through music and stories. And then we count on those who appreciate what we do to show their support. Are you one of them? Show your support by visiting RadioMilwaukee.org and joining today. We are back on Be Seen, the bonus episode, number seven, on the topic of whether or not the mafia was involved in operating Milwaukee's earliest gay bars. Remember, as we covered earlier in this series, Milwaukee's first LGBTQ uprising happened eight years before Stonewall, meaning we already had a thriving nightlife in the 40s and 50s. One bar that did have a faint connection to the Ballastery crime family was the Pink Glove, and it showed the or else part of the threat. What would happen if owners refused to pay for protection? So the Pink Glove is kind of the flip side of the coin when it comes to the bars of the 1950s. Um, In 1957, two brothers decided that they were going to go into business and open a gay bar for gay people that actually advertised as a gay bar. And in August of 1958, um, they opened the Pink Love at 631 North Broadway. The problem was the Pink Love was too popular. It was too famous and it was too profitable. It was making so much money that it attracted the attention of not only the Common Council, but the Balistrieri crime family. In its first week, this bar made over $15,000 because they brought in a host from Chicago who was very popular, who brought people from Chicago and encouraged gay people from Milwaukee to kind of come out of the shadows and and come and join this space, which was unprecedented. It was really not a place that had ever existed before. Um, Again, there had been gay and gay-ish bars in the past, but this one was specifically open, designed, and marketed to the gay community. They weren't simply tolerated here. They were the guests of honor. So how did that – how could these two things exist in a time when it was illegal? Well, that is the problem, right? So in October of 1958, um, the Bell crime family really started leaning in on the Klein brothers who ran the Pink Love – Um, They were sending people in to raid the till. They were sending people in to harass the patrons. Um, They were really applying pressure on the Kleins to um, pay up and, you know, offer protections to their clients through the Balistrieri family. But the Kleins refused to do this. In fact, FBI records show that on September 4th, 1958, Marvin Klein and Frank Balistrieri were arguing at the Belmont Hotel, and shortly thereafter, Milwaukee police began bombarding the bar with raids. So not only would the Kleins not paying the crime family, they were not paying the police, and they certainly weren't paying off the common council. They were trying to run like a very ethical, very above-the-line, very um, modern business at a time that was not very modern. So in the end, the pink love was a lesson for future prospects that, you know, operating a gay bar in Milwaukee was going to be impossible unless you went one of these routes. And um, on October 25th of 1958, the bar closed. It had only been in business for a brief 67 days. 
and it was gone forever. It made it for just over two months, and it showed what would happen if owners didn't play ball, either with the police or the mafia. On the other end of the spectrum from the pink glove was the ad lib, another bar that was definitely aligned with organized crime. But it wasn't a gay bar, at least not exactly. But the ad lib did find a way to work with gay and trans performers to draw a queer audience and do it all while skirting obscenity laws at the time. So the ad lib is probably my favorite story in all of Milwaukee LGBT history. And it's because it was a nightclub that opened as a world-famous jazz club, but within a few years had completely swapped out its business model for strip shows. So it went from like high-end jazz performers to essentially just being like a red light district strip club like almost overnight. And what prompted that change? So it was very expensive to get the big names. And the ad lib opened by welcoming some of the biggest names in jazz. I mean, they had Dizzy Gillespie and Count Basie and Miles Davis and um, Gene Krupa. Like they had like everyone who was a big name at the time, even comedians like Rusty Warren and Henny Youngman. But it was very difficult to continue booking talent at that level. So in August 1967, the manager said, we're only doing this temporarily. And we have jazz performers booked for later on. But for the rest of the summer, we're going to be a strip joint. What's interesting, though, is that Milwaukee ordinances made it very hard to run a strip club. Female entertainers could not sit at any table. They couldn't sit at any booth. They couldn't sit anywhere with male customers. They couldn't accept tips. They couldn't accept drinks. They were really weren't allowed to do much but dance on stage. And even while on stage, they were very closely monitored for what they would do, whether it was too suggestive or what they would wear and if it was too revealing. However, at the ad lib, the girls seemed a little bit more liberated and a little (laughs) bit more loose. Um, They were as famous for drink hustling as they were for losing their tops. Hostesses would set up private meetings between dancers and patrons. These were a little more than wallet heists. Easy marks would see $20 bills disappear after buying girls drinks that were supposedly liquor but were actually tap water. And eventually the charges got even worse. Um, It really walked a very thin line above prostitution. And the city allowed dancers to strip down to their underwear at the time, so like basically undergarments, uh, tops and bottoms. But at the ad lib, many of the dancers would go topless and eventually bottomless. And then started breaking the rules about touching the audience. So things went from bad to worse for the ad lib very quickly. So thinking about this, um, (laughs) the ad lib owners and their investors um, came up with a brilliant solution. So they reassigned their regular girls to one of their other strip clubs where they would be less supervised by the vice squad. And they announced that three new Go-Go Girls would replace them. But as the so-called Go-Go Girls took the stage for the first time, the announcer yelled that the new show's title was The Third Sex, featuring an all-star cast of female impersonators. Now, somehow this was lost on the audience. Like, the audience had no idea that 
these were either transsexual, transvestite, or transgender women. Um, and I use those terms because they were the terms of the time and the time and of now. But some of these were essentially men dressed as women, and some of them were actually genetic men who had had gender affirmation surgery and were now genetic women. And the Balistrieri family recruited specifically these people so that they could skirt the obscenity laws and get away with things that could not get away with at any other club, nor could any other club compete with them. So if the vice squad would arrest one of the girls, essentially they would fight back by saying, you know, I'm a man and the law does not apply to this. Did that work? It actually worked. (laughs) So, I mean, it, it was absolutely insane. I mean, switching out the cast was like the smartest business they had ever done in their entire history. And the nightclub was busier than ever. Eyewitnesses described a super sexually charged mix of clueless straight men, clued in gay men, who were essentially there for a drag show, made men from the mafia, vice cops, FBI detectives, and sailors from Great Lakes Naval Academy. Um, The female impersonators were cheaper talent than national jazz performers or burlesque dancers. Gay men were loyal customers, generous spenders, less likely to cause trouble. And the flexible identities of the performers gave the ad lib a flexible defense, and they just continued to push legal boundaries. One notable trans performer, Misty Dawn, was actually discovered at the ad lib and went on to have a career and considerable fame in Chicago. So besides the ad lib and the pink glove, there was another establishment that was connected to organized crime, but maybe not the kind of organized crime you're thinking of. The spot was called the River Queen, and it represented the last chapter in bars paying for protection in Milwaukee. So the River Queen holds a really big place in the hearts of people who were alive when it was first opened in 1971 until the time it finally closed in 1980. It was a very different kind of gay bar. What made it so different? It was elegant. It was classy. It had um, kind of like... Storyville, New Orleans, Bordello aesthetic. Um, brass, it had crystal chandeliers and brass fixtures and red velvet walls. It was the finest lounge of its time. So, like when you would have national touring acts like Carol Channing or Martha Ray or Milton Berle or Paul Lind or even Liberace, this is where they would go to cocktail. Like, this is where they would go to be seen. Um, But the bar's license was in constant jeopardy almost the entire time it was in existence. And the original owner sold it to a man in 1973 who ran into some issues between 1973 and 1976. um, Because in in January 1976, the River Queen was the epicenter of a massive police corruption scandal. And this was something that made the news and people knew about? I mean, this was not some underground... No, this was front-page news in the Milwaukee Journal and Sentinel, because this was big. This was the big bust of the year. So, as it turns out, to avoid police harassment, which the previous owners had dealt with, the bar owner had provided cash payoffs, expensive gifts, cases of liquor, unlimited free drinks, you name it, uh, private parties after hours to over 50 police officers and their wives for three years. 
this sounds like quite the turbulent period. I'm thinking about, of course, the owners were, were taking risks, but the patrons were too, you know? And um, I'd imagine it took a certain kind of uh, patron to 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 be willing to go and to be there in public, right? Um, so how, how did how did nightlife change after this period? So again, you know, the, the concept that the mafia had opened the earliest gay bars really by now should be obvious that was pretty much a myth, right? Because, I mean, without police protection, Milwaukee would not have had three dozen gay bars open by the time of the Stonewall Uprising. So... Yes, organized crime was involved in the earliest gay bars in Milwaukee, but it wasn't the organized crime that we think of. It was actually the police operating an organized crime syndicate. Um, the River Queen really blew the lid off of that. And the idea now in people's minds that the police were in on this all along and that the police had been accepting money and that they'd been partying in these spaces and that they'd been... These bar owners had to pay to be freed from harassment. I think it really pissed people off. And I think people were like, wait a minute. Like, you know, like, like, are you kidding me? So, yeah, it, I'm sure it really shook the public's trust. It's really interesting looking back, you know, at this timeline, this progression, this evolution, because Sailor Bar started, you know, almost well over 100 years ago as this private space for men to be in like a very segregated men only space and somehow that lent itself to needing protection from police to turn a blind eye to what might go on in these spaces to open and outright gay bars operating with gay men lesbian gender nonconforming people um, that were really fiercely protected by the police because they were a profitable asset. And it's it's really strange to think, you know, there there's this again this mythology that the mafia did all of this. And the mafia stepping in would have made things so much easier <laughs> than what these owners had to endure um between the problems of police protection, common council and alderman um inquisition. Um, all the white-collar harassment of City Hall. When you add it all up, it really would have been much easier just to pay off the mob to protect you and keep you in business, but that isn't what happened, and that's not what these early owners did. Uh, most of the early owners of gay bars in Milwaukee opened these spaces because they saw a need in the community and sought to take care of people who had nowhere else to go. Um, Angelo and Betty Aiello at the Mint Bar... Um, the owners of the White Horse Inn, the Klein Brothers at the Pink Glove, even though it only lasted 58 days, was was literally a meteor in 1950s gay nightlife. Um, all of these spaces existed because people saw a need and stepped in to fill it and create a community. And without them, who knows where Milwaukee would be today? So a definitive not really on the mafia angle and a corruption of a different kind in the form of police payouts. Now, Gavin, the author we interviewed, does acknowledge that just because the records don't exist doesn't mean that it didn't happen yet. But without the evidence, he says he just can't back up that claim. Thank you for listening to Be Seen, Episode 7, the bonus episode. If you're just finding this podcast, go check out the whole series. All six episodes are streaming now. 
We cover the state's first LGBTQ uprising, how Wisconsin was the first state in the nation to pass protections for its LGBTQ residents, and we meet the owner of the state's last remaining women's bar. Plus, we also speak with the owner of Wisconsin's longest-running gay bar, and we close up the series by learning how the community fought back against HIV and AIDS beginning in the 1980s all the way to today. Find those episodes on the player you're using right now and at radiomilwaukee.org slash bseen. I'm Nate Imig alongside Michael Takash, and this is Be Seen from Radio Milwaukee and the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project.